bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining the session today. This is the third in RBC's Navigating Energy Transition series. The first session we discussed carbon capture. The second session, we tried to scratch the surface on the hydrogen economy. And in this session, we're going to be talking about renewable fuels. It's been a growing focus for the, the majors and also for the independent uh, refiners. Um, I'm hosting this session with my colleague, Brad Huffman, the RBC US refining analyst. Uh, if you haven't already, please do check out Brad's Renewable Diesel note from mid-September, which covers a number of the topics uh, we'll touch on today. Yeah, thank you, Baraj. Uh, good morning, everyone. So we have three speakers today. We have Umberto Carrera, Head of International Business Development and Licensing for Refining at ENI. We've got Gene Gabolis, CEO of World Energy, and we have Paul Bateson, Chief Auto Operating Officer at Greenergy. Uh, we want to make sure that the session is as interactive as possible. So if you do have a question, please submit it online through the system and we will get to as many as possible. So we'll go right to Q&A with Brian. Thanks. So uh, maybe we'll start with Eugene. So renewable fuel looks to have become an increasing part of the transition plan for the large oil majors as well as the US refiners. World Energy is also expanding uh, output in the US. Could you talk about uh, what you're doing and, and the role do you believe renewable fuels will have to play in the future energy mix and, and you know what exactly is driving the increased activity and interest recently yeah it's interesting uh, 2020 is pick your cliche uh, the tipping point year or uh the the, the year of uh, the perfect storm or, or whatever the analogy is but uh there clearly have been an awful lot of uh, announcements about in particular renewable diesel and renewable jet projects uh on uh, around the world on both sides of the atlantic for sure and that seems to be happening kind of this year. Uh, obviously, bioethanol and biodiesel have been around a long time, bioethanol all the way back to the 70s, uh, biodiesel back to the 90s. So kind of what's happening now, and in short, it's really about uh, capital flows and following the money. Um, if you were putting a penny into equities uh, in, in the independent refining sector in, in 2013 in the US, well, if you put a dollar in, you'd have less than a dollar today. If you put it into into integrated uh, uh, oil companies in 2013, you'd have uh, uh, even lower returns. And the independents and the independent refiners in the states are are really having a challenging year, obviously because of COVID and, and other things. And so, uh, if you were if you'd lost half of your market cap, you would be uh, at the head of the class uh, in the U.S. So. As you look out on the on the horizon, uh, you've got ESG pressures. Not only is it a, a current issue, but a kind of go forward issue. Um, the oil oil refining and and integrated sector is is uh, really facing changes, and so it raises the question of if we know what we're going to be getting out of the question of what are we going to get into, and I think a lot of those pressures is what's culminating in. Uh, the desire to, to trigger new pro uh, projects uh, uh, in the states and around the world. Maybe we can uh, move on to you, Paul. So building on some of Gene's comments, could you just elaborate on some of the trends facing home in the UK and Europe and, and particularly the regulatory regime and what supports there are and you know how you expect the renewable fuels market to, to develop uh, in Europe? 
Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Barash. <clears throat> Look, we were talking beforehand about terminologies. One of the challenges we've got, we're all, we're all using the same terms to mean different things. And so I'll, I'll probably use different terms to what Gene has used. And, uh, and but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and explain. Uh, I see three major themes in, in the UK and Europe, and, and those are uh, 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 increasing mandates, uh, the, the introduction of sustainable aviation fuel, SAF as we're calling it here, renewable jet fuel, um, Gene referred to it as. And then the final uh, column there are what we call uh, development fuels in the UK, advanced fuels in the, in, in the EU. And, and, and in amongst those three columns, if you like, of, of the whole renewables package, um, we, we're seeing different challenges. The mandates in the UK, we, uh, you know, we're currently legislated at 9.6% as the, uh, the biofuel content of the road fuel pool. We, that, that will increase between now and 2030. We, we, we see it going up to something close to 14% and that'll happen within the next two years. Um, that's our view. Um, the EU is, is, is mandated at 14% by 2030. They're already talking about red three now, which is, which is mooting levels of 24%. But, but all of that means a, a bigger pool. Um, bigger pool. And it's not just biodiesel, it's bioethanol, biomethanol, biomethane, hydrogen, all of, the, all of these alternative fuels are increasingly important in the mix there. Um, the big unknown for, for all of us is, is sustainable aviation fuel. If the airlines are mandated to use sustainable aviation fuel, that is the supply just really isn't in there in, in, in large quantities at the moment. Um, the, the technologies are, are there, but the supply is not there, but the feedstock will then be, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on, I suspect, um, that, that, that'll be in competition for the same feedstock that the road fuels are looking for. Um, those are difficult projects, they're more capital intense projects. Your end consumer is likely to be an airline, and I do see challenges there with with, with signing up a long-term contract with an airline at the moment. I mean, that's, you know, the credit, the risk rating of that, that eventual off-taker is a big challenge to support the investment that's required for those projects. And finally, you've got development fuels. Um, this is a big mover for the UK, certainly, also for, for the EU. A, a development fuel um, is defined differently in each each member state, but in the UK, essentially, that's a that's a that's a novel fuel that's produced from a feedstock which has which is not in the fuel food chain at, at any point in time. Um, it could be municipal waste, it could be old tyres, it could be waste wood, um, and the kind of technologies you're looking at there are more akin to refining technologies, gasification, pyrolysis, so these are capital intense projects, but um, with uh, strong mandates to support them. Uh, the, the UK has a, has a trajectory, a requirement today. We're, we're obliged to blend some development fuels. There isn't any. So you go to the buyout, and the buyout is, is, is considerably more expensive than, than, the, uh, than the RTFO buyout. 
top of that, you've got um, you've got you know an increased use of fuels like biomethane. We're seeing that coming into the market more and more. So anaerobic digesters producing gas that's compressed into the uh, into the gas network, pulled out somewhere, compressed into a vehicle. Um, that's a, that's another source of the mandate. We're seeing more and more ethanol in the mix. Don't forget that not all of Europe is on E10 yet. That's 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 going to happen across Europe. That's a big increase in the in the, in, in the pool to supply the mandates. Um, biomethanols also we're seeing some hydrogen coming into the pool. Um, and all of this sits underneath the sword of Damocles, which is the uh, the eventual ban of internal combustion engines. So um, we've, you know, the the UK certainly this week has come out with um, some major major announcements in new internal combustion engine sales are banned from 2030 in the UK. So so how does that fit with your capital uh, investment program and your and your returns that you require in order to 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 make those investments. So that's a challenge um, that we have to deal with. And then I guess the final theme that we're that we're all thinking about and, and hoping won't happen is a hard Brexit and what impact that will have on tariffs and, and trade flows as well. So I mean a hard Brexit will imply a tariff on imports of biofuel from Europe to the UK or from UK to Europe. And that will influence the trade flows that we see there as well. So Quite a lot going on um, in amongst a, a COVID pandemic as well to challenge us. Yeah. Great. Th- thank you, Paul. Um, I guess we'll go over to E&I for Umberto. You know, you've been a pioneer in co-developing some of the hydrogenation technology. Um, you've recently com- completed a couple of uh, conversions of hydrocarbon refineries to biorefineries. Can you just talk about what makes a successful project? You know, is it location? Is it feedstock access? Is it something else? Um, and then what are the impediments to, to sanction more projects like that? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, good morning and afternoon, depends on the country side you are. Um, yeah, what's, what are the, uh, the successful uh, elements for, for, this, for the project of, of our two biorefineries in Italy? Uh, first, I would like to mention technology. Uh, we as ENI, we have, uh, we have always uh, believed in uh, investing in R&D projects and eco-finding technology is one of the products we, we develop uh, uh, in the early 2000 and actually we uh, got the license in eco-finding technology back in 2007 and is now co-licensed by UOP which is our lead uh, licensor. Uh, and I would say Ecofani at, at this stage, apart the nest capacity is the most widely commercialized technology for EFA products, which I guess cover more than 90% of today's EFA refining capacity. We believe in Ecofani technology to the point that uh, we move from the lab phase immediately after, uh, to the in industrial scale uh, application in Venice. Uh, and we went in operation back in 2000. 14. So since then, we have matured quite uh, important operational and technological uh, field experience, which gave us, uh, I would say, the basis for improvement to achieve uh, today high performances. But on top of it, uh, there are many other additional benefits that uh, we believe made Venezia and Gela a successful project. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to say the plant location. 
is basically uh, very com very i mean is part of a of an, of an existing industrial uh, refining complex so we get the maximum synergy with existing asset uh, you can name logistic uh, tank hydrogen and any other kind of utilities necessary for running the the, the bio refinery and that also helped uh, to minimize capex uh, and also to while you are invested we got a quite uh, uh, reduced time to market uh, for the first product we deliver uh, then of course uh, those two refineries where uh, we had uh, an immediate access to the final product market uh, that allow us to capture the entire value chain guaranteed by having uh, a premium renewable diesel the other important element i guess is part of the success is uh, uh, we are on the trading uh, market uh, with our ATS now, ATB, which is any trade in biofuels bio uh, company, which was used to supply, which is our trading arm to supply our refinery. And so is on the worldwide uh, um, operation to collect uh, all the feedstock, which is uh, a very important, one of the key uh, success factors for, for the biorefinery is the, the security security of supply and type of supply. Uh, last, but I say not least, uh, I will say that the system is very flexible to different feedstock. So this is also another very important element, flexibility to treat different feedstock because feedstock are not uh, huge, are different. And uh, so we need to be able to capture the best uh, opportunity for an optimized uh, uh, margin. Back to the question that was also the last part, I guess, was about uh, what are the impediments to do to sanction more. Uh, I would say uh, one of the, the uncertainty that uh, uh, new investment need to consider are basically uh, the, the, the regulatory framework. We all, know, we all know that the current transformation process is pretty much driven by the regulation framework. It's very important in this framework, as mentioned by my colleague before, it's it develop uh, in, a, in a solid and clear manner, but also obligations are important to be compliant with this, uh, with the plot. Otherwise, uh, there is the risk that uh, is sometimes people prefer to pay penalties rather than comply with the obligations. Great, Th thank you for that. Um... I guess going back to Gene, so, you know, we think we have a new administration coming in in the U.S. Um, how supportive do you think Biden is likely to be of renewable diesel um, versus, you know, it being the individual states that have been carrying the load recently? And then when you think about all the regulatory programs that support the economics, RINs, uh, you know, the BTC, um, the LCFS, do you see any risk to those programs? I think a couple of things have happened in during the the current administration, the current Trump administration. The administration has not been particularly friendly to energy transition technologies generally, and the and lower carbon fuels more specifically. Um, but the response to that was a little bit unexpected. Um, what what happened is, is is it really shifted leadership from the U.S. federal government into states, provinces, and Canada. Uh, and and really importantly, in, in uh, uh, private companies, and so really for the first time now, uh, with with the net zero pledges that we're seeing coming from leading companies in in all different sectors, 
we're seeing a corporate uh, leadership that really didn't exist kind of four years ago at the level that it does now. Uh, and so uh, your, your question is about the, the durability of, of uh, uh, federal and, and state programs in, the, in this side of the, uh, the Atlantic. Uh, I would say, broadly speaking, uh, across the world, we're inexorably moving in the direction of, of regulation that is, is going to be um, more and more favorable to lower carbon um, energy sources. Uh, certainly, our, our, our renewable diesel uh, facility, renewable jet or, or sustainable aviation fuel, we're going to use that phrase that that, that works too, uh, uh, is, is, is in Los Angeles County uh, in California and, and, and the California low carbon fuel standard has been really a leading um, uh, uh, regulation in the, in the states. Uh, it pulls product from uh, not only from around the United States, but from around the world into California. Um, that that program is, is is extremely durable. Other states are now adopting similar kind of low carbon fuel standards, which are interesting because they really incentivize a greater and greater reduction of a carbon impact. And there's lots of ways to do that, as as Paul had mentioned even within uh, an existing facility, we're working on renewable hydrogen there, renewable natural gas, we're working on sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel and blending of biodiesel and making green gasoline. So Paul's points earlier, we're, we're, we're spot on. This isn't one technology, this is a drive towards reducing carbon impacts. But uh, the, the federal program in the, state, in the states is, is the renewable fuel standard. That is not going anywhere. Uh, it's been under as much of attack as, as it could be in the, in, the, in the last four years. It's withstood that. There's bipartisan support for, for the re renewable fuel standards or some successor version of it, but it's not going away. Uh, so broadly speaking, I would say you're going to see more and more uh, regulation towards lower carbon fuels, not less. Maybe we can go back to uh, you, Umberto. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about the industry dynamics and how you expect them to develop, you know, over the long term. So you've seen some new players enter the market, um, but I guess over time, would you expect to see this play, this market dominated by refiners and, and majors, or would you expect, you know, maybe some agricultural companies wanting to move downstream and enter the, into the market and you know, from, from E&I's perspective, how important is that vertical integration uh, in this business? Obviously, I mean, this is a quite uh, an area, a, a, an era of, uh, of, uh, of um, which is uh, pretty new, I would say, you know, it's not a consolidated uh, type of business. And uh, the, the margin that is now providing uh, uh, is definitely a, a very important, uh, what can I say, uh, things to, that would attract a lot of newcomers, I guess. And, and, and if I think uh, who could be, who, who are the newcomer into the, the renewable uh, uh, fuel, uh, it's definitely, I guess, I would first, my mind is coming to the conventional refiners that might consider to convert their traditional refineries into bio refineries, as we did in Gela and Venezia, for instance. And that is, uh, I think, is a very important uh, um, element uh, because uh, uh, they need to restore their asset value into a market already dominated by 
uh, today by an excess of fuel, fossil fuel capacity. So uh, fossil fuel will decrease over the time we need uh, and and who owns these assets need to think how to get again money out of it. Uh, so the conversion uh, is uh, one possibility, uh, but there is an element of of risk, an important risk, I guess, to keep in mind because uh, the supply and demand balance uh, today is in a very delicate phase uh, to find the proper dynamic equilibrium. And uh, if I look. Uh, what has been published worldwide in terms of project to be become biorefinery is a significant oversupply capacity compared to the demand evolution the next uh, in in this decade. So it's something that uh, is uh, need to be really uh, thought twice prior entering into uh, investment. The fact that the type of feedstock uh, for the biorefineries also give the opportunity uh, for agriculture and food industry in general uh, to extend their value chain and maybe capturing downstream their own uh, their own typical uh, uh, product entering into a, entering into in the in the so-called waste value today waste is becoming heavy a lot of value uh, particularly for the one that is uh, 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 most rewarding in terms of carbon intensity abatement so this is uh, so this kind of uh, um, industry as as the opportunity to enter into uh, the waste treatment uh, i would say when i say waste treatment i mean uh, towards uh, uh, fuels and so it's as are the newcomer into this kind of uh, business um, but and then i would say that the third category that uh, uh, may come into the the the, the, the game uh, i call it the feedstock collector which is a relatively uh, a new type of business, but is absolutely necessary now this kind of activity because uh, feedstock is uh, normally produced in very limited quantities and widely dispersed. So those collectors are part of the supply chain absolutely necessary for the uh, who invest into uh, his, his own capital into uh, the biorefinery. And among, the, among everything else, uh, the, the security of FISTO supply is probably one of the most critical elements uh, uh, for a biorefinery project success. And I see uh, a natural, I would say, uh, new type of partnership, which is already in place in, in many examples, to be formed between the FISTO producer and the biorefiners. So vertical integration for me is a key, represent uh, a logic, I would say consequence of, of uh, who produce feedstock or endor feedstock and transform the feedstock into uh, biofuels. That's great, Connor. Um, so maybe I, we can delve a little bit deeper on that. And I'll ask Paul, um, you know, what's your view of the overall kind of feedstock availability and, and Maybe you can talk a little bit about the various elements, cooking oils, animal fats, etc. Um, you know, as as the demand for all that feedstock uh, grows, um, you know, how do you expect to see the supply and demand of the various various feedstock markets? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a, it's always been a challenge. Um, you know, the uh, go back 10, 15 years ago, and pretty well every restaurant in 
in in the UK, in Europe, they they didn't they didn't have their used cooking oil collected. Sure, you or they paid someone to take it away. Now now there's a pretty sophisticated collection industry out there collecting used cooking oil from restaurants and and from food factories and from supermarkets globally. Um, the demand is definitely growing. That you know, Umberto just talked correctly about it. I mean, the 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 best lowest carbon feedstock is always going to be a used cooking oil or a, or a category three tallow um, animal fats, and and those markets are already already quite well developed. And they are global markets, but but there is more of it out there. There are markets which are not currently um, collecting and supplying, and there are big markets which are not currently collecting and supplying. Um, and, and, and in part, it's down to the admin that's required because it, it's one thing to collect and supply the, the physical oil, but the, the key element that you have to have with it is the, is the data. The sustainability data. Where did, it, where did it come from? How did it get there? You know, how much water has been pulled off? All of this data tracking exercise is 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 really quite sophisticated for for that kind of industry, um, and it's where some some markets, you know, they don't they don't see an incentive to 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 do that, so they so they don't collect for the uh, for the biofuels industry. And there's a lot of effort going in at the moment to developing tools to improve the sustainability tracking, make it easier, make it better, make it tighter, make it closed loop. Um, we're involved in one ourselves with a, with a partner company called BioLedger, which uses a blockchain and app-based devices, which you know we hope to be trialing in the very near future um, so that we can get a closed loop on 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 the sustainability data and i think as as that rolls out and as we can we can you know capture this data more easily at the source then we'll be able to tap into other markets which are currently not collecting brazil for example 100 million people you, you just don't see any used cooking oil coming out of brazil there's plenty of used cooking oil in brazil it probably mostly goes down the sewer um so there, there are markets which are untapped and um, the big question is is there enough to supply all of the HVO, renewable diesel demand, to, to supply all of the sustainable aviation fuel? I, I suspect not. Um, if all of these projects which are talked about at the moment come to fruition, I suspect there is there will be a, a, a tightness of feedstock, um, which means that those projects will run other oils as well. It also means that some of these other pathways that we talked about, like uh, biomethane, like hydrogen, um, uh, and, and and don't forget ethanol, uh, because ethanol does does count in a lot of lot of markets as well, and and, and a lot of markets aren't blending to the to the limits there and there are other ways to create ethanol from cellulose from i mean we've seen some very novel technologies carbon off gases from steelworks being converted into ethanol um, that's a fantastic concept if you think about it because it's carbon capture and it's creating a renewable fuel um, so you 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 will see some of these other projects price in as well I think, as as the supplies and feedstocks become constrained but, um, but so for me, it's really about the sustainability tracking, creating the technology and the systems to create secure, easy to use system that a guy driving a van to restaurants can can have on his app, on his on his phone. Um, then it's about logistics. Umberto talked about having to be a global collector, 
um, aggregator trade. I mean, it's what we do. We have we have a global procurement team. Um, we have collectors, uh, and you've got to be able to handle this in all shapes and sizes. Uh, and it doesn't suit every business, but you do have to be able to deal with small quantities as well as large quantities and and, and aggregate it up. Um, and and that's a challenge. I mean, there are. It's not. Believe it or not, there is IP involved in handling a flexi bag of of used cooking oil. Um, it's it's not the easiest thing to deal with, and you have to learn about that. And there's people involved, and so so there's a you know, these 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 techniques are necessary if you want to want to capture all of the oil because because not every market um, can put it on a ship and and in big quantities. But there are small quantities in every market, and you have to aggregate them all together. And that, and that, that logistics know-how and, and capability, which does involve a lot of people along the way, is, is very, very important. Um, and then finally, we'll see other new, new feedstocks coming in. We've talked about tall oil for years in, this, in, in the biodiesel industry, but um, it, it will start to become processed, these kind, kind of oils. Um, I mentioned carbon off gases, solid waste, solid food waste, often still ends up in landfill. Um, you know, you can have considerable fat content in those solid food, food waste. There are ways to get at it. Algae is starting to resurface again um, as, as, as a feedstock. It takes a lot of energy to get it out of the algae. You could, it's great oil when you get it out. Um, if somebody has cracked that, that, uh, that technology, that's another, another source. So, so there are other sources of oil out there. Um, but, but the big challenge is how many of these projects will be built and what the actual demand will be. Great. That, that's great color, Paul. Thank you. Um, Gene, maybe we can just round out sort of the feedstock discussion here. You know, we know about the carbon intensity differentials between all these feedstocks. How do you think about sourcing? Do you think that ultimately the market will become more efficient so that the, the different value of the carbon is already reflected in the price? Yeah, look, uh, I think the, the feedstock um, question is answered by who can get the best netbacks to the, to the feedstock supplier. And that's all about end-use markets, and that's all about aggregating the, the 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 most amount of value per molecule. And uh, if you're in a place where you can do that, there 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 are traditional refining operations that are in better places that and in worse places. There are traditional refining operations that are use uh, better inputs or worse inputs. Or, or have better uh, efficiencies or worse efficiencies from an operations point of view. Uh, that's all true here too. Just because we build a bunch of new projects doesn't doesn't mean that they all get fed feedstock. Um, the, the, the feedstock question is really an end use question. Uh, can you get the best net back? Can you get the, can the, can you aggregate the best value? And, and on the feedstock side, particularly when you're doing CI accounting, you, you, you get a double return to logistics. So you get the normal savings of whatever you get by being well located either near end use markets or feedstock sources or both. Uh, and then you get in, in the way that the California program works and increasingly other uh, low carbon programs uh, around uh, North America, uh, the way that works is you get the double benefit of having the efficiencies of logistics turn into a lower CI score, which gets you a better, uh, better credit value. So it's really a, a very much a logistics-based uh, 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 game. I, I, I agree with Paul in, in terms of 
what he was saying in terms of the expanse of the available current feedstock pool, it will expand. Even within the feedstocks that we use currently, that pool is expanding and will continue to expand. There will be new feedstocks that enter the mix as well. Uh, so that's all part of it. I certainly agree with what Umberto was saying that, that this is increasingly about alliances between uh, the, the folks that have the re refining capacity, the renewable diesel or renewable jet or, or biodiesel, or whatever whatever your 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 production facility is, really increasingly gets integrated as a piece of a supply chain. It's not an entity unto itself, which just goes out and sources uh, feedstock from wherever it wants to on any given day. There's really now an opportunity to derive value back into the supply chain and actually improve the efficiencies at at the source of the of the feedstocks as well. But that requires partnership between between uh, uh, renewable diesel producers and the suppliers. So that's that's kind of where the future of this is. It's not that everybody that wants to take a a, a refinery that's no longer uh, uh, productive and converted into a, a renewable diesel, re, uh, sustainable aviation fuel facility will work. That doesn't necessarily mean just because it wasn't a, a, a productive a traditional refinery doesn't mean it's going to be a productive uh, renewable diesel refinery. There's got to be a strategic fit. And, and so that that's what's, uh, I think, really, we're, over the next few year, years, you're really going to see these networks of partnership emerge. You know, we, we touched on a little bit earlier in the call, but on sustainable aviation fuel, you know, there have been a lot of pledges from the airlines in this in this field. Airports have put out targets as well. Maybe maybe both Umberto and Jean, you know, can you just talk about how important you see the role of that being over the long term? That as attractive as renewable diesel, you know, what are the differences between those those two sort of production methodologies? And then has COVID impacted your thoughts at all on, on that one of the business? Umberto, over to you first. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, sure, Jim. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, talking about um, SAF, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, um, I, I mean, aviation, uh, fuel aviation is probably, uh, the aviation sector is the, is the hardest uh, to abate, uh, abate uh, the, the the carbon intensity. I mean, uh, very difficult to replace jet fuel uh, nowadays uh, in, in in the in the um, uh, flights. So, and if I could, and and there is one very 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 impacting on the GHD emission is a billion over a billion ton per year at least before COVID back in 2019. So, is a major. I would say pollutant in a way, or uh, but but it's difficult to to be changed in terms of fuel. So, to me, uh, the the biofuel, the biojet, uh, represent at this stage uh, in the short and medium term the only sustainable aviation fuel that uh, is realistically available uh, to reduce the, the emissions. And also the EFA technology has already achieved an industrial maturity that is already good to be used into the jet. On top of it, I would say, uh, if, I, if we go back after uh, when the COVID uh, crisis will uh, disappear, I mean, nowadays uh, we all know the, 
the, the aviation uh, traffic is uh, collapsed, I would say, almost to, <laughs> you, you, you say a low number, it's, it's all right. I mean, but uh, sooner or later, we believe uh, that we, we, we will, uh, this will recover. Uh, despite the new uh, wave to smart or the mass smart working will be widely used after this COVID experience, but uh, aviation will will resume. We believe will uh, go back to typical numbers, and um, if we if we think the few percentage of uh, biojet into the amount of jet that will be used uh, for aviation is a tremendous uh, business opportunity. There is a tremendous lack of capacity of biojet nowadays. Although, although uh, the program or the regulation to, to use biojet bio are still, uh, I would say, at the very beginning, I would say. I mean, the only, the only program available is Corsia, which has the beauty of being internationally applied and this is something that i think is needed uh, to to have a, a uniform uh, framework for the aviation but uh, it's uh, it's at the very beginning uh, it will take time to to develop but again it's uh, by any means for me the most promising uh, market into the biofuels i'll just add uh, a couple of thoughts i I agree. Uh, we will fly again. Uh, <laughs> we need aviation fuel again. Uh, we 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 are. Uh, the 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 thing is that the the recovery of the airline industry is going to be a, 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 a private public partnership, and uh, and because of that, uh, the airlines are going to have to build back better. Uh, it's not going to be a return to what was. There's going to be significant. Um, significant pressure on, on airlines, and they certainly know this. They've been at the, at the forefront of, uh, of of trying to develop SAF, um, and and we have too. World Energy's been around since the mid 1990s. We seem to always try to do things well before they're commercially viable, and we've been doing uh, sustainable aviation fuel for much longer than it's been commercially viable. Uh, so back to uh, 2015, uh, there is no. Uh, compelling reason to, to, to take uh, renewable diesel and convert it in a, a, a renewable diesel gallon and convert it into a sustainable aviation fuel gallon, other than to begin to build that market. So we've been we've been doing that uh, now for for quite a few years, uh, and um, and 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 folks are are buying on. We just announced a, um, a program this week with uh, with Rolls Royce and. and testing we're doing with them we've uh we're, we're fueling with shell uh we're fueling uh amazon uh flights we work closely with united in the united states uh th this this sector will emerge because it has to emerge it has to emerge so uh they're not we're not going to be flying electric airplanes anytime soon uh there has to be a liquid fuel solution uh, and so there has to be a SAF uh, industry that emerges, and, and it will. It's starting to now, and it, it's really picking up speed. Obviously, uh, COVID has dramatically impacted uh, aviation fuel, the aviation industry generally, and aviation fuel specifically. But as the demand picks up, SAF will be a much bigger part of, of the demand picture going forward. And so 
I think most of us that are doing renewable diesel activities are at least looking at how to how to build out the supply of of SAF and in in our conversion project we're we're converting to a 360 million gallon facility in LA we're in the midst of that effort now uh, we'll have the ability to do uh, up to half of that plant we'll be able to do SAF I think others will be looking to build that kind of optionality into their projects as well. Awesome. No, that's great, Keller. So thank you all. Um, I think we can open up to questions from the audience now, so, uh, for the remainder of the time. But um, just as a reminder, if you do have a question, please submit it uh, online and we can try and get to as many as we can. Um, the first one actually is something we've touched on, but maybe we'll ask it more explicitly for Gene and for Paul, uh, similar question. but. Uh, in California, there's a potential look to ban uh, internal combustion engines by 2035. In the UK now, it's banning of sales uh, in 2030. Um, you know, does that, in your eyes, limit uh, the opportunity for you in, in renewable fuels? Or is that is the market still big enough to, to kind of absorb that in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I suspect we have similar views, but Paul, why don't you go ahead and go first? Yeah, look, it... Look. Banning internal combustion engines doesn't mean to say that 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 sales from 2030 or 2035 doesn't mean to say you stop selling gasoline and diesel and and the, and the requisite bio components from 2030 or 2035. The, the, the demand will continue and will be there for quite some time after that. A car generally lasts 14, 15 years before it gets scrapped. So you you can imagine it will it will decline somewhat gradually. Um, it, it does make it more difficult, of course, because you, you know, these bigger projects need to be financed. So you have to. We're going to look at them. and We're going to say, look, is 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 that project still going to be there? What's my what's my exit value on that project? Is it is it there? It's going to make it more difficult. Um, it's going to focus on on expanding existing plants. I think much more than building grassroots ones that's that's it's going to be a lot easier i think to justify an expansion of existing plant it, it, it definitely challenges things and 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 to gene's point of course aviation fuel is, is is much more likely to be a liquid for for many years to come than 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 road fuels so it might it might focus the market more on aviation fuels rather than than diesel equivalents so I, I might be in the minority on this, but uh, I actually see these these kinds of developments all very much in line with what we're doing. Uh, uh, I don't see us as a uh, biodiesel company. I don't see us as a renewable diesel company. I don't see us as a sustainable aviation fuel company. I see us as a low carbon energy company. And, and as society is pushing uh, towards uh, uh, greater and greater regulation, whether it's reduction of... Uh, of um, uh, internal combustion engines in the UK by 2030 or in California by 2035 or, or somewhere else by some other date, it's all pointing in the same direction. And so, uh, and so what we're doing now in 2020 leads us to better solutions, better solutions and better solutions. Innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It doesn't, you don't wake up one day and, 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 and innovate. You, you, innovation is an incremental activity. And, and you just keep getting after it day after day after day. You don't build your project and then say, that's that. You keep on working on it. You keep on finding ways and keep on finding ways. And so I don't think we find ourselves in at some point in the 2030s in which liquid, lower carbon liquid fuels are no longer necessary. 
uh, I think they're going to be uh, more and more necessary, not less and less. And uh, and might they move more towards aviation and less towards uh, the automobile as more automobiles uh, become uh, electric or some other uh, non-liquid fuel technology? Uh, yeah, perhaps. But in the diesel side of the equation, you're going to see continued use of, of diesel applications for as far as the eye can see. Certainly in the aviation world, we just talked about that. There's no change coming anytime soon. So if we're in the industry of finding ways to transition to lower carbon motor fuels, I think that industry has uh, nothing but growth potential for as far as the eye can see, regardless. And, and even because of the impetus to uh, ban transportation, uh, you know, passenger cars, uh, internal combustion passenger cars in, in places that tend to lead like California and like the UK. Alberto, another uh, one for you here from the audience. So you obviously have business development in your title. Um, can you just talk about how 2020 is, has changed or how you think about business development? Obviously, we've seen all these new supply announcements. We've seen the ice bands. You have COVID. I imagine it's somewhat different than it was a year ago. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, our our uh, business development uh, is um, in line. What are the ENI uh, strategy uh, along the decarbonization path that we have uh, that we have uh, uh, announced? And, uh, and so, among the various uh, initiative to decarbonize, uh, one of these is to increase our biorefining capacity nowadays we have one one million tons we are moving towards uh, five million tons in the coming uh, years so this is a way uh, that uh, we contribute in in our in our in, in implementing our strategy and uh, as far as i see 2020 is uh, an acceleration is an accelerator of 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 implementing these strategies so simply accelerating a process which has already started as i said uh, during my first part of the intervention already many years ago uh, is not something coming out of blue but you have been investing uh, since many years uh, starting from the r d and uh, and uh, this crisis is, is basically, uh, I, I say, is an opportunity for us uh, to implement even faster what we have uh, in our in our strategy and using the tool we have developed ourselves, most of ourselves. Maybe the next question um, I'll aim at uh, Paul. Um, you touched on uh, the feedstock point um, that there may be some sort shortages as the, as the market grows, but you know as these markets expand, uh, as the regulatory support continues, um, and, and everything we currently know, you know how much oil demand can be replaced uh, by renewable fuel, for example, in the next maybe five ten years, four o'clock. Um, well, look. <laughs> Gene talked about innovation. That that that's the point. The, the, the market will work. The market will find ways to create um, more and more renewable fuels. They won't all be what we think of them of them today, but there are 
there are many, many projects out there. We tend to think, call them development fuels or advanced fuels, which are looking at novel feedstock sources, very low carbon fuels as well, um, which will, will fill the gaps here. So it, it's not all going to be conventional use cooking oil and, and tallow, either convert to biodiesel or hydro-treated into HVO or uh, or into sustainable jet fuel. It's going to be other sources as well. It's, it, it, it's going to be taking carbon and, and, and then converting that into, into an ethanol or a methanol and making a gasoline out of that if you can't get it in as ethanol or a methanol. It, it's going to be using municipal waste. It's going to be using tyres. Um, we're involved in a number of projects looking at, looking at novel feedstocks along those lines lines where you where you where you take something which is a genuine waste which is a problem to dispose of and you convert that into into a, a renewable fuel and it's all part of a circular economy which is another theme as well which which other industries talk about much more than we do in the in the in the renewables world but but you know the circular economy is very important to other industries and they're being being motivated to do that some of these projects are going to going to be producing feedstocks for the petrochemicals industry as well rather than going into fuel and that and you, you you'll see that that, that the, the petchems industry um will, will pay a higher price for a renewable naphtha than the than the oil industry will and so because you know they need to need need to meet that and you know plastics today we can't get plastic into into fuel but but legislation is continually under review and we'll see plastic come into the fuel supply chain as as a feedstock potential in the not too distant future i'm absolutely sure so so i think i think you know the market will work the market will and and, and innovators will work we'll find new technologies we'll find new feedstocks which will which will substitute the 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 used cooking oils and, and the tallows but we'll also find more used cooking oil and more tallow because there's still an awful lot of it which which is wasted I think, uh, I think we'll finish there. So, uh, Jean, Umberto, Paul, thank you so much on behalf of Brad and I and everyone at RBC. We really appreciate your, your time. Uh, for, for everyone who's listening, um, the next session in this series is going to be on the 3rd of this December, uh, and it's the role of the grid in, in delivering net zero. So I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and watching. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.